Recording. Uh, three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Lions Love by Donkeys podcast. I am very tired, Joe, and uh, with me today is Mike McGinnis, host of You Don't Know History. Yeah, what man. What up, dude? What's up, man? Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm I'm always uh, excited to be on uh, anything you're associated with. Um, we're, we're starting to, we're starting to hit the same streams, man. Like I've been on left flank vets a few times now. Uh, I do socialist Sabbath. Yeah. I do socialist Sabbath with them on Sundays, which is really cool. Um, you know, and you know, now I get to come back on where I'm not talking about war crimes. So that's always cool. Well, hopefully not too, too, too many war crimes. How about that? <laughs> uh, well, you can't go on this show without, without talking about yeah. war crimes. It will just be war crimes. We are not directly related to. Yeah, um, I, I will. I, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> uh, people might remember Mike from the bonus episode we did f- uh, two years ago. Yeah, year roughly a year and a half ago. Um, from the Stars documentary from the Andy Jacobson book, he's got kind of a fucking rock star these days. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, from the Washington Post and California yeah. Weekly articles. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I was I was the war crimes adjacent guy. Uh, and I have been since 2012. Uh, so thank you, Clint Lawrence, for that, dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you have Clint Lawrence to thank uh, for that, and I have uh, uh, Robert Bales to thank for the press calling me, which is not something that I like. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, no, no one wants to hear from anybody anybody that has anything to do with either of those two assholes. So, no, I can comfortably say I do not. Um, Unless I have a book coming out, in which case <laughs> I have no choice. Yeah, um, I mean it, it's like Bales, dude. You and I kind of talked about it, but like I was, I was ha- I, like I was half expecting that, like the day before, uh, you know, the big the big white Cheeto left office that he was going to sign that pardon for Bales, and I was I was cringing, and then it never 100%, happened. Hundred percent, you know, hundred percent. It didn't happen, and I was like, holy shit! I'm, I was shocked, uh, you know. Uh, I, I uh, that, mildly optimistic for about three and a half minutes before that built-in pessimism, you know, came back out. <laughs> yeah, uh, like I had uh, lieutenants who, uh, like, uh, well, former, I think he's like a captain or a major now that I hadn't spoken to since deployment, like talking to me in the lead up to that, like, because my phone number hasn't changed, and uh, like, bro, you think he's gonna pardon bails? Because like, we were, you know couple like a dozen miles away from that whole thing yeah and you know we were all fucking having nightmares about it and it was, i was so happy that like uh, I, and like i'm sure that like realistically donald trump had just no idea who robert bales is but the like the concept of pardoning robert bales was so beyond the pale of of the people that slid him clint lawrence uh like file you know even they were like no i can't do that one which says a lot um for that particular piece of shit yeah Um, yeah man it's just i I think it had more to do with it was the same talking heads that were trying to slide the bales file across from him probably yeah and honestly i think if it would have happened a year before he'd probably get signed uh but i think he was just like fuck it man i can't stay in the white house and I gotta go inside another fucking QAnon, you know, uh, a fueled 
riot march. So I gotta I gotta get down to Florida for a little bit. <laughs> now, Mike, um, you you majored in history. If you as as I did, if you were to say that there's one thing in in uh, American mainstream American history education that's kind of a blind spot, what do you think it would be? Like Southeast Asia, Russia, Africa, Africa and Latin America, definitely. Well, good news. We're talking about Africa today, uh, which you already knew because you picked this script. I absolutely uh, and I, did. <laughs> and I was trying to be slick with the transition. I just can't lie to anybody. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, this is the earliest I've ever, I think I've ever fucking recorded, and I'm still kind of asleep because well, uh, we're on opposite sides of the country. Yeah, yeah. That that Carolina to Hawaii uh, difference <laughs> will get you, man. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, I've talked about this before about the the kind of blind spot that African military history gets. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for this, obviously, in my opinion. Uh, people having trouble or just unwilling to confront their colonial past and how it affects the present day. Uh, hello, Belgium, the UK, and France. Um, if you're listening, yeah. And UK, I know you're listening because you're third after Canada when it comes to my ratings. Um, <laughs> So, uh, or maybe just like a just unwillingness to learn about conflicts that are always much more complicated uh, than and than most things Europeans find themselves in. Like it's never just like country A invaded country B. There's always much more at play. Yeah, um, I mean, and you and I both know as well, especially in Africa, you had uh, nominally, uh, you know, supposed allies that were working yes. against each other. Uh, you know, behind the scenes in a lot of these conflicts, you know, on the African continent. So that just added to yeah. the, the unknown. It, like, and obviously, there's always, you know, the US, uh, the USSR at some point, Cuba at some point, um, France, Belgium, the UK, everybody has their hands in this shit. And then plus the actors in actual Africa, there's always layers, you know, uh, and they're, they're like a lot of it breaks down into tribal levels that people, honestly, in the West just don't care about. Um, I'll let you assume why. Probably racism. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go ahead uh, and say definitely racism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, what I learned um, in journalism school, excuse me, allegedly. We can't Alleged sure. racism. Okay, it's alleged racism. Unless you're Belgian. I'm coming down hard on the Belgians this yeah. time because we're talking about Congo. Yeah. And also, fuck you guys. Yeah, definitely. Seriously, look uh, what you did. Yeah. You fucking monsters. <laughs> um, uh, now... Uh, th- this is one of the reasons why there's no real mainstream understanding of things like the First and Second Congo Wars. Uh, they're th- uh, some of the most destructive wars in human history and certain of modern human history. In the post-World War II era, nothing has been more destructive than the Congolese Wars, though Syria is certainly trying. Um, and uh, certainly since like we've been alive, uh, there's probably been uh, no bigger flashpoint. Obviously, the Middle East jumps to mind immediately, but you don't see the, the, the sheer amount of human misery that you see in African conflicts. Um, and I think the reason for that is they're just allowed to spiral out of control. Like you, uh, I mean, the UN gets involved a lot, but they don't do much. Uh, the African Union is trying. Bless their hearts. They're not doing great either. Um, and, you know... At the beginning of one of those wars is what we're talking about today, and that's going to be the Second Congolese War, um, and that is the beginning of that known as Operation Katona. Have you ever heard of that? No, I have not. I can honestly say uh, I have not heard much about Congo outside of uh, you know Katanga, and that was because it's related to like Irish history, which is what I'm really into. So, 
Yeah, and it's also just very weird that like this, what it was like a platoon or a company is like a company of Irish infantry fighting French mercenaries in uh, a former Belgian apartheid state. Great yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it it checks off all the marks for Netflix movies, you know. Apparently, um, yeah, you know, which which is nice considering that they were ignored for you know fifty five, sixty years in Ireland before that. You know, the Irish government's like, well, maybe we should do something for them. What do you think? And we'll spot him a low-budget Netflix film. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> I mean, if someone would give me that, I wouldn't complain. Oh, but dude. I also, uh, you know, yeah. I get a low bar. I get a low bar. Yeah, that's how I look at it, man. Dude, the way, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a freelance journalist and writer. Like, come on, dude. If you gave me, like, it could be like a D movie with Kathy Griffin in it. All right? I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be in it, man. <laughs> Hell yeah. Now... Like we always do, in order to understand this operation, you do need to understand a little bit about the First Congo War, otherwise known as Africa's First World War. Um, It was both a civil and an international conflict in the dying days of the state that had once been named Zaire. At the time, the nation was led by a dictator, Mobutu Sese Seko, a man put in power and supported by the U.S. due to the fact he hated communists, because, you know, why else? And, uh, you know, the U.S., as always, are willing to overlook just how many fucking people he killed. Also, we almost certainly had a hand, along with Belgium and France, maybe also the U.K., to kill Patrice Lumumba, the uh, first prime minister of the Congo. Oh, dude, if you if you read uh, Othan's book, Christopher Othan's book, Katanga, yeah. it opens up with one of the men that were, was there on the ground, one of the people that actually pulled the trigger to kill Lumumba, and he had some of his teeth that he kept in a little bag on like a coffee table in his house to this day. A party favor. Yeah. You know, you come over for some drinks, we throw <laughs> you some Patrice teeth. Yeah, you know. Um, I mean, and, and let's face it, what is the actual American pastime? It is keeping horrible dictators in power with high body counts. That's that's what America yeah. truly is. All the way until it circles back around and we have to kill them for some other reason. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, like, I, I, I talked a little bit about Lumumba during... Our uh, Siege of Jadoville episode is an all-around good dude, uh, though pretty much set up for failure due to Belgium's complete and utter despondency of taking care of this nation or colony or personal property, depending on the point of Congolese history. Yeah. Now, Mobutu clung to power since the 1960s, but it was now the 1990s. He'd promised reforms in order to hold on to power for just a little bit longer. However, Zaire was a weak state. Mobutu had virtually no control over the massive expanses of Congo. And honestly, the size of the Congo is lost on most people. It is fucking huge. And at no point has there been a functioning government that's controlled at all that wasn't through, you know, genocide like the Belgians. Yeah. And even then, you know, you can't even really say that that's like a functioning government. That's just it was a murder state. You know, like that's exactly what it was. Like, because, you know, what do you think government it at least provides some service, like even if it's shitty. Like the, yeah. the Belgians in Congo were not providing a service. They were just murdering millions of people for rubber. Yeah, they're just extracting rubber in hands. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know? And uh, in that expanse, for the most part, were roving rebel groups um, or sometimes bandits. Uh, you know, Not all of them had a political purpose. Some of them were just there to steal shit. Um, as well as units of the Zairean military, who also acted as bandits and, and rebels from time to time, robbing and raiding towns because Mobutu had stopped paying them. 
Um, he just stole their entire payroll for himself. <laughs> huh. Huh. Shocker. Yeah. yeah. We didn't know that happened. So they're like, well, if we don't have a paycheck, we're going to go do, you know, stuff with these guns that you gave us. Yeah, yeah. The, the, you know. Wait a minute. Um, wait a minute. We're, we're, we're posted at an army base with, with weapons and ammo. Okay, <laughs> cool. You don't pay us. Well, here's our new base of operations, you know? like Yeah, exactly. Um, it, and it was hardly a police state. Like, people call Mobutu a tyrant, and he, and he was, but not in the traditional sense. Like, he didn't have the power to have a, tr- a police state. Yeah, I mean, um, you got to think, though, too, in Congo, this wasn't, like, the, you know, especially Western and American people, they don't realize that there are hundreds of distinct tribal entities within, like, oh God, yes. <laughs> the borders of Congo. And, you know... We just saw that initial flare up in the 60s. You know, there was, I think if I remember correctly, there's like five or six secession movements. Uh, during, there's quite a few. Yeah, yeah. just during the, like the, the, the period of the 60s, you know. And then as we get into this new period of nationalism that, that really came about after the fall of the wall in the Soviet Union, you know, everybody wants their own chunk. Everybody. Um, and, and that really became apparent at Congo. Yeah, and you know that's something that's going to be pretty common. All of these um, different groups have um, different problems with different people. Most of them with government, uh, some of them with other tribes. So it's like it, it, it's very hard to say at any point Mobutu uh, heavily oppressed everyone. But it was if if you weren't being oppressed, it was extreme neglect. Yeah, um, he might as well have not existed. So people did not like him. Uh, now. Right next door to Congo is a country where nothing bad has ever happened called Rwanda. Um, Now, the Rwandan genocide began in 1994, uh, and through 100 days of psychopathic mass murder, nearly a a million Tutsis were killed, while another 1.5 million fled across the Congolese border, which was as it still is, pretty much wide open and unguarded. Uh, it's it's an impossible expanse to guard um, for the Congolese government or their security services. Well, um, maybe they should just build a wall? <laughs> I, don't give them any ideas. I, I heard that worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked great. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, 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 if... They had someone like Mobutu, and he was sitting on a, a like a giant stolen payroll. He's like, "What can I spend all this money on?" <laughs> you know, I'm going to build this wall, uh, but you know, I'm going to build about 25 feet of it and then quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it got really hard to contract people out to go build this fucker. Um, but like <laughs> like Rwanda, there's just yet another thing the Belgians fucked up in you know Central Africa. Uh, you know, a lot of people like to point out that you know Germans were heavily influenced there. The Belgians were the first like Euro group that put. You know, like uh, the I alluded to the Eddie Izzard skit where they just threw a flag in the ground. You know, and they're like, "Hey, yeah. it's it's Belgian," and they're like, "No, bitch, what about me? We like we live here." And they're like, "No, no, 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 no." You know, I mean, it's the you know the whole Hutu Tutsi split was really started by the Belgians and just everybody yeah. else added to it. It's pretty much bureaucratic. Yeah, um, it's like that's something that's always kind of blown my mind, especially as like. Um, uh, you know, a, a white passing individual uh, growing up and learning history in the United States. Like, oh, who discovered North America? Like, motherfucker, nobody discovered. Like, there's already people here. Yeah. Like, how the fuck? Th- <laughs> it's like you kicking up in my front door. Like, I've discovered Joe's house. <laughs> I mean, this is um, this is my pad. No, it's not. I'm sitting right here on the couch. No, man, get out of my house. You know, like some asshole Portuguese guy just kicked open my door. <laughs> um, now, uh, the. 
The Rwandans that fled into the Congo uh, were not like taken care of in any way. I mean, like like we said, the, Z- the Zaire Congo. I'm going to use those words interchangeably because it's the same place. Um, the government didn't take care of its own people. They didn't care about these guys either. Uh, they were allowed to expand into camps. These camps are also armed uh, by the like. Uh, there was a Rwandan Patriotic Front uh, that uh, went back and forth, which is how the genocide ended. Um, the Rwandan Patriotic Front uh, ran into the Congo and then reinvaded Rwanda. Um, you know, due to international uh, international powers not giving a fuck when Africans are being genocided, the Rwandans had to do it themselves. And also, there's a hell of a lot of information and evidence that points to the Fran- uh, point that France kind of helped the genocide. Oh God! Um, you know what? I'm not surprised. It, I'm not surprised. It's not irrefutable. Um, I will say it's not good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a bad look, France. It's a bad look. At any point, uh, a genocide occurs, and you can say, "I think you might have helped. You had to help a fair amount." Yeah, I mean, this—you know—we've talked about it. You're you're a little more, uh, you know, in, I wouldn't say into it. That's the wrong word, but you know, what I mean, like you're a little more. I'm really into the genocide, uh, um, you know. But you're you're a little more savvy to the information that you know, like a lot of these genocides are are very well monitored and documented and yes you know kept track of by the people perpetrating them you know and this one's kind of unique in that it wasn't um like because you know it was organized like people think it was like the spur of the moment thing that absolutely wasn't um but also they weren't keeping a lot of paperwork yeah um but you know eventually we're gonna have a series covering that because my my cambodian genocide series did not make enough people sad oh my god Uh, dude i i needed you to hit the animal facts more during that one man (laughs) hey blame nick it was his job to say the safe word also like that's the joke now is that series fucked nick's head up so much he hasn't been on the show in a month that's not why but i'm gonna go with it yeah Um, i mean just play it up and then you can have like a big uh special episode when nick gets you know comes back to sanity it'll be great it's gonna be like uh you ever watch a wwf when you're a kid we're about the same age oh yeah dude definitely like i'm gonna be recording with someone else and the glass is gonna break stone cold <laughs> song like the music come like my god is that nick even though he's a you know the other side of the country too uh we'll make it work yeah uh, i mean it, all you gotta do is practice it once or twice then hit record you know it'll be good to go <laughs> our first ever bit um <laughs> so the Rwandan Patriotic Front invaded uh, Rwanda and overthrew the Hutu-dominated government. Now, hundreds of thousands of Hutus reversed and also fled to the Congo. Uh, now, a lot of the Tutsis did not go back to Rwanda. They're like, why the fuck am I going to go back there? I'm staying here in the Congo. So you now have groups of Hutus who were just killing them, fleeing into the same areas as the Tutsis. That, yeah, it's not great. That had to end well, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not great. I mean, it's kind of like the end effect of whenever you have... Uh, this is not the the, the actual uh, historical word for it, but like a homegrown genocide when uh, someone genocides someone within their own borders, is that you always end up living next to people who probably killed your family members. Yeah. And that's like a, something that Rwanda is still dealing with to this day, and Cambodia for that matter. Uh, but these Hutu elements, both former Rwandan military... And members of the Interhamway militias. The Interhamway militias were, generally speaking, the ones doing most of the killing uh, during the genocide. 
uh, both of these groups rearmed themselves and began attacking Tutsis again within the Congo. Uh, they were also not happy about being kicked out of power back home and also began raiding over the border into Rwanda to attack the new government red, uh, led by Paul Kagame. Uh, Kagame asked Mobutu to force the militias to disarm, uh, which it's hard to say Mobutu had the power to do that. Um, but uh, Kagame, assuming that Mobutu was kind of helping them, told them to disarm or at least stop them from attacking Rwanda over the border. Uh, you know, there's a combination of Mobutu not quite having the power to flex on these militias uh, because his organized army of what was considered one was pretty much a joke. Uh, and it was only informally any, under anything that we could recognize under a central command. It was almost like a really widespread warlordism where uh, garrisons would have a commander who kind of commanded their military district like a fiefdom. Okay. Uh, we see that pretty often um, in uh, not organized militaries. And, uh, I mean, you saw that with the Khmer Rouge as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's a way to keep thing you know expenditures low as well. You keep lining your pockets that way if you're not paying anybody. Yeah, I mean, the Afghan military kind of functions the same way, yeah. uh, but to a lesser extreme. Uh, there's also uh, the fact that many of these military men and interhomway militias, when they ran away from Rwanda, they looted the country. Like you know, like you're looting copper. They pulled it down to its very fibers. Uh, so Mobutu decided if he couldn't stop them, he should just sell them a bunch of weapons and take all that genocide booty off their hands. Oh wow, that's uh, <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah, if, if you haven't picked up on it, Mobutu's kind of an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's. Hmm. Uh, we, <laughs> I've got I've got a country next door. In the midst of a genocide, heavy fighting. I've got heavy fighting within my own borders. Wait a minute. Rwanda's heavy fighting is now spilling over into Congo. Wait, you know what? I know a great way to fix this. Here, guys. Yeah, Mobutu <laughs> is just the original disruptor. You yeah. know? He, he, he's an entrepreneur of being a fucking asshole. Listen, the only, um, the only entrepreneurs we recognize right now are the, you know, the, those asshole redditors that are somehow tearing down uh hedge funds i appreciate them even though they're gross capitalists <laughs> it's incredible yeah it's definitely a let them fight moment yeah um now uh kagabe wasn't dumb he kind of understood that like either a mabutu isn't going to uh isn't going to do anything or b mabutu is behind this but it, it was definitely a happy medium of c we're all of the above <laughs> Uh, so Kagame and Ugandan President Yare Museveni armed and trained their own militias within the Congo. <laughs> wow. So every, everybody's there. Like you and I could have had a militia in the Congo, you know, in Congo. Oh, 100%. Okay, yeah. well, all right. Wow. I mean, no, we would have worked for USAID. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's true. Um, you know, but like that's that's kind of crazy that everybody... Like, it's a very fractious country, but I didn't realize everybody was involved in the, you know, kind of the militia game there. That's kind of how these wars go. Um, there, and, and the first and the second Congo War, you had, like, Angolan troops, you had Congolese troops, you had Ugandan troops, all these things. But you also had, like, you ever watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia with Charlie Day and the giant fucking oh, yeah. threads oh, yeah. on the, the you had something that looked like that of militias <laughs> and all of them are paid for by someone there is some straight up like 
native uh, political movement based militias, but they also have benefactors who are paying them. Uh, it's a proxy war within a proxy war within a proxy war within an international war with actual international powers being involved as well. They're very, very confusing. Wow. And you don't see very many large battles, which is why this episode is very interesting because you do see that. You see uh, small-scale raiding. Um, you know, you see uh, you know, anywhere from a couple squads to maybe a company-sized element burning down a town. You don't see like you know, divisions maneuvering because they simply don't have that ability. Yeah. So it's all, it's, it's very unique. Um, now, when uh, Museveni and Kagame trained and paid these proxy fighters, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back of the socio-political ties that the Congo had with Mobutu. And it sparked a massive uprising all across the country. Um, and then soldiers, not militias this time, from Rwanda, Uganda, Angola, Burundi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, and Eritrea all got directly involved, ending Mobutu and deposing him in 1970s, uh, 1997. Sorry, That is when Laurent Kabila, a man directly picked by Rwanda, took his place. Yeah, I was going to say, who, who chose this guy? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to become a point of contention. <laughs> Uh, he also changed the name of the country from Zaire to the Democratic Republic of the Congo because, sure, everybody knows when you add words like democratic and republic to it, the country becomes a free and safe place like the Democratic Republic or the People's Democratic Republic of North Korea or whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah, too fly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You mean, you mean that, that perfect worker's paradise from what, yeah, from what, yeah. I, from what I've heard on Twitter? Uh, I mean, I can't wait to go there and then mysteriously be murdered, uh, like Otto Warm Beer. Yeah. It's gonna be great. Yeah, or or wait a minute, just be held prisoner and forced at hard labor for twelve or fifteen years. I mean, what's the big deal? Yeah, it's my fault. I shouldn't have. I don't know. <laughs> wanted to eat. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> uh, Kabila learned pretty quickly that shockingly, all of these African powers that put him in power did not, in fact, have Congo's best interests in mind when they lent him massive military and financial support in order for him to take power. He asked them to kindly leave, and they refused because that's how that works. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, You know, it it never works well when you third-party country is like, hey, you're going to lead your country, and then that leader's like, dude, uh, you know, I'm from here, and I'm going to tell you to fuck off, and you know, that never ends well between the, the person that put him on the, you know, on the throne, so to speak. Uh, yeah, and especially because you had so many hands in the cookie jar. You know what I mean? Like all these countries like, you know, Angola and Rwanda uh, historically don't actually like one another. And, you know, you could say the same for Zimbabwe. And like they're all attempting to manipulate uh, the Congolese government. And like even if Kabila was like, yeah, fine, let's do everything that you want, eventually they're all going to start fighting over you anyway. Yeah. So like this is never a situation that was going to work. Um, now, uh, they refused to leave, and soon most positions within the Congolese government were taken up by Rwandans who didn't even bother to move into the country. Uh, this <laughs> included the chief of staff and head of military. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, like, just imagine Kabila sitting in his office like, yes, I have them right where I want them. <laughs> controlling everything. Everything. 
that's that's a that's a flex right there though man you know like yeah you know i'm gonna i'm gonna run everything here you just sit over there and look pretty like i could get it like you know um Ahmed Chalabi is like a good example. Like we put into power when we invaded Iraq. He was at least Iraqi. Yeah. <laughs> like imagine invading. And we, obviously we did this with like the transitional uh, authority, but like the first election of Iraq, like we, we elected Dave from California. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is I wouldn't put it past the U S to have done something like that. Honestly, like, Hey, Jim, right, yeah. Jim, Jim, Jim from Indiana, come on over. You're going to run for prime minister of Iraq. Uh, we- uh, we'd like to welcome the head of the Afghan uh, uh, Shura, uh, Tommy Tuberville. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I was a great football coach, and I can make peace in Afghanistan. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for making me the head of this lawyer, Jerga. Uh, I really hope that we could take these peace talks and really drive them across the goal line. Yeah. God, I can't do an Alabama accent, and also I don't know if I've ever heard Tommy Tuberville speak. Uh, all it, dude, all that comes out of his mouth are the Charlie Brown teacher's words. <laughs> That's it, man. That guy's a fucking idiot. Now, <sighs> once these guys were in office, that wasn't it. Obviously, uh, for people who are aware, Congo is incredibly rich in minerals. It's something they call the resource curse. Uh, if if uh, if Congo's infrastructure was to modernize and they, uh, you know, be given the tools to uh, function their own internal growth, Congo would be the richest country in Africa and be significantly richer than several European ones. Yeah, um, I mean, dude, it was it was the you know it was the kind of the feather in the Cold War cap for Africa because of all the uh, minerals that had that were required to make nuclear arms. Yes, you know, yeah, like uh, I mean, so the, the the Russians, the Soviets, and the Western powers are like, we gotta have Congo, no matter what. And then we see everything that happened during the '60s and into the '70s. You know, like it's fucking yeah. ridiculous. Most of most, if not all, I don't want to say all because there's someone that's going to correct me on it. Of the radioactive material that we used for the bombs in World War II were harvested via slave labor from Belgian Congo. So. We did it! Yeah. <laughs> Great America! Woo! Fly the banner! <laughs> yeah. um, Mission accomplished, baby. We defeated Japanese fascism with Congolese slavery. God, this fucking country, man. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, and like, obviously, this is something that Europeans have been fighting over for ages, but also this is something that African nations really, really want. And that's something that uh, all of these governments with their hands in the cookie jar wanted to siphon off the wealth from Congo. Um, like all of them wanted uh, these huge deposits of minerals, most of which are used for technology now, uh, lesser extent nuclear weapons, I hope. Um, like, uh, you know, I think like uh, Colton for like cell phones and stuff. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, very, very, very important things. Um, now, the problem has always been late stage capitalism, colonialism, and foreign intervention. Uh, and this is kind of, you know, like somehow you know, that that meme of the two hands shaking, but there's like eight now, and they're all shaking different parts of the arms and shit for fucking over the Congo. Yeah. Now, uh, eventually, Kabila realized that he had seriously fucked up uh, and he could no longer control the Rwandans. He never could. He's kind of an idiot. Um, and he fired all the Rwandans in his government. Uh, he also followed this with a demand that all foreign militaries leave the country within 24 hours. Yeah, we know how well that's going to be listened to. 
Yeah. Well, Rwanda had a bit of a trump card here. Uh, and it wasn't just like, fuck you, I'm going to roll tanks across the border. Remember all the Hutus and Tutsis that still live within Congo? <laughs> Rwanda used them as kind of a secret army. Uh, um, <laughs> it's like the sl- government, sleeper cell. <laughs> yeah, and they did it in the most fucked up way possible. Instead of just like sliding like, I don't know, money across the table like, hey, go shoot a cop or something. Uh, oh. They paid off parts of the Tutsi side and parts of the Hutu side to just turn things into an orgy of violence. Um, they killed each other. They killed Congolese. They killed um, Congolese military civilians, attacked infrastructure. Um, and soon, like uh, most of the Tutsis living in Rwanda or living in the Congo were rebelling. Uh, so then the, uh, the governments of Rwanda, Uganda and Burundi all openly gave them aid. <laughs> Oh my gosh, dude. Wow. <laughs> like, I can't... Maybe it's just, uh, you know, I, I just don't know much, you know, much of anything about Congo and, and a lot of the, you know, we'll say Central African conflicts, right? Like, I just can't wrap my head around everybody, like you said, having their hands in that cookie jar. And at any one time, one of those powers can be like, you know what, fuck this, let's upset everything. Here's a couple bucks, you guys. Go start fucking everything up. And then next thing you know, you have this thing just blow up, you know? Yeah. And they like didn't even try to hide it uh, that they were like, that's the thing that um, that kind of shocked me is that they were all openly helping the Tutsis. Now, the reason for this was because uh, Rwanda, who is, I guess you could say, in the in the lead of all of these international assholes on the border is like. Look what we did. We will make it worse. Give us back our positions in government and we'll pretend this didn't happen. Okay. That's, yeah. Like, we'll make you like the, the Rwandan government mafia. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's their protection. Like, would it be a shame if something happened on your border? And <laughs> um, Kabila didn't buy it. He's like, no, like, get the fuck out of my country. So. Uh, Paul Kagame in Rwanda realized, like, hmm, Kabila isn't gonna play, isn't gonna play ball. Uh, so they, uh, uh, Kagame, along with all of these other nations, uh, began planning an operation to replace Kabila, uh, the leader of the Congo, with someone more agreeable to them. Again, again, yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, maybe we should start doing that here in the states. Just like, hey, uh, you know, Ohio and Virginia said the president sucks. So we're just going to pick some other cat to put in there. And, you know, what's the worst that could happen, right? Clearly not. There'll they'll be a sectarian violence between Michiganders and Ohioans. Well, <laughs> I don't know if you saw what I posted you on Twitter after here, after I heard that Portman's not running again and that they're floating Jim Jordan or the asshole that wrote Hillbilly Elegy to run as a Republican in Ohio. I will no oh, lo- J.D. Vance. Yeah, yeah. I, I will no longer be defending it. It deserves all the hate in the world. And Ohio, you have hurt me so much. I will tell you this now. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, welcome to the Fuck Ohio podcast. Yeah, yeah there we go. <laughs> um, you know, I used to give Ohio a much harder time being a guy from, you know, obviously from Michigan. But then, like, I looked at Michigan and be like, you know, I don't know why you hate it. We both suck. Yeah. We're both terrible states. Yeah. We're fucking <laughs> awful. I mean, honestly. Your river catches on fire and our water is undrinkable. Yeah. I mean, um, the U.S. would be better off if they just traded Ohio, Michigan straight up for like Quebec. 
<laughs> like a free agency. Yeah. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> US is like, we signed Quebec and we're releasing Ohio and Michigan. That's, that's actually been Michigan's plan for years. We've been tanking for 10 seasons. <laughs> so we get the number one draft pick and we're going to hope that we get drafted by like the EU or something. <laughs> uh, so we have health care. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, like, I, like we pointed out before, Congo's a big fucking country. Uh, so like traditional military operations simply are not going to work. Now, it's seven times larger than Germany, or since we're a show based in the U.S., we're at the fringes of the U.S. at this point, it's four times larger than Texas. Yeah. yeah. Congo's a big fucking place. Yeah, and there, there's a lot of space to cover, you know, to and do anything. there's no infrastructure. Like, you're, you're not going to jump on, like, the H1 and drive across, like, I say H1 like anybody's familiar with Hawaiian roads. You're not going to get on a fucking highway... And drive to the capital, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you watch Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain, he went to Congo. Uh, yeah. And he had to travel it the old-fashioned way down the Congo River. Because <laughs> they literally have a ministry of, like, transportation that was supposed to, like, deal with the trains and stuff. But it hasn't been funded, honestly, probably since uh, uh, Kabila was in power. Like, in the late Probably night, not, yeah. You know, but they have, like, a bunch of people that literally volunteer to keep, like, the one train through like these three provinces running um and it's it's crazy dude uh and like the roads uh like he went to a couple of the refugee camps like in the eastern part of the country that are still there and he's like dude we had to fly in on this puddle jumper and it was like held together with like duct tape and a prayer you know (laughs) and (laughs) and they, they had to be driven around in like uh you know four by four suvs because that's the roads there are literally just big you know uh you know essentially cut out from the terrain and they can't be improved on because of the constant fighting. And like, I know um, it's like dirt tracks. Like we have some here and like it rains and they're com- they completely turn into like, uh, they'll eat your car. Yeah. Yeah, effectively. So you can't just drive down them. So obviously when Rwanda is playing this military operation against a state that is honestly so much bigger than Rwanda, pull up both of them side by side a map. It's kind of hilarious that Rwanda's dominating yeah, them so like, severely. Like, how is Rwanda being the bully here, man? <laughs> it's kind of incredible. It's, it's truly a, an underdog tale. Like we started from the bottom being genocide and now we're here doing an imperialism. Yeah. Like it's very fast turnaround. Yeah. Um, so, while Rwanda and the and the Congo border one another, uh, the Congolese capital is actually on the other side of the Congo. So, like, just storming in and taking the Congolese capital is not going to fucking happen. It is thousands of miles away. Um, and not to mention, neither nation, Congo or Rwanda, had anything that could be considered a functioning air force. So, loading up, you know... 101st Rwandan Airborne and dropping them on Kinshasa is just is not going to happen. Well, those, it's out of the question. Those guys would have been air assault, Joe. Okay, <laughs> We all know if you're going to be jumping out of the aircraft, it's going to be the 82nd, okay? Actually, uh, actually, it'd be the both one- of them equally useless. Yes, actually, actually, it'd be the 173rd. Who are we really fucking kidding here? But uh, the ones that would talk about it the most would be like the 82nd Congolese Airborne Division. I love that you were airborne and I was a tanker and both of our jobs are completely pointless God. in the 21st century. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> uh, how many combat jumps did you do? And I'll tell you how many tank battles Ooh, I was in. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a nice, it's a nice donut. All right. Um, <laughs> yup. The, the one thing I wanted from the military, which was a mustard stain, you know, I wanted that combat <laughs> jump and I couldn't even get it. I got everything else, 
you know, <laughs> except the one thing I wanted. It's like uh, when I was in tank school, everybody, like everybody's talking about like training for tank battles. And the drill sergeant's like, what the fuck are y'all talking about? You're all going to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, oh, hey, man. And he was right. Yeah. Hey, man. World War Two is not happening again. Uh, just uh, yeah. get, get your shit off your tank and start fucking walking <laughs> that way. <laughs> yep. And he was right. Yep. Um, now, there's one way you can get an Air Force if you don't have one, Mike. You fucking steal it. Uh, or... I, I guess the correct term would be hijack it. I, now, I like where this is going. <laughs> I, I got to give credit where credit's due for Rwanda. Think it outside the box. Yeah, because I was, was going to say you contract it. Uh, but like you said, you know, Kabila's taken all that, that war booty for weapons. So I get that. But hijacking, I'm, I'm interested in this. <laughs> yeah, you, you get an Air Force for the, the low, low price of nothing. Uh, Kagame and his chief of staff, James Karabiri, came up with a plan that is kind of straight out of a bad Michael Bay film. They would instigate a Congolese military mutiny, which was easy enough. They were mostly still unpaid, so Rwandan agents just would have to bribe them. Um, and like their whole plan was based on bribes. It's bribes all the way down, but it worked. Um, so they would go to the border the Rwandan-Congolese border, where there was an airport. But in order to get there, they'd bribe the, the Congolese military. Um, th- they eventually took over the town of Goma and its airport with no real resistance because they bought everyone off. They then hijacked six different airliners. <laughs> so they didn't have an air force, but they did have something of a civilian air infrastructure. So they just stole those <laughs> instead. Okay. All right. I mean... You know, like you said, give credit where credit's due, man. You know, when in doubt, figure it out. That's what they always told us at the <laughs> army. All right. <laughs> you know, if I was writing this for like a staff college or something, I would say the Rwandan military adapted and overcame. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the Rwandan military identified a uh, key, uh, you know, shortage and then found a way <laughs> to reduce that shortage. That's exactly what they did. That's how I get around all of my problems is I hijacked airliners. Um, now, they packed these six different airlines with full of soldiers and then forced the pilots to fly them at gunpoint to a different airport on the other side of the country in Katona, a few hundred miles away from the Congolese capital of Kinshasa. Now, you're probably thinking that using an unescorted and unprotected airliner for a military invasion is kind of stupid and insane. And you would be right, but Congo lacked any kind of functioning air defense that could shoot them down or like in an in, in interceptor. Like there was no way these air, unless they just like fell out of the sky. Yeah. There's no way they were coming down. So once the Rwandans landed in Katona, the hijacked airliners then went back and forth to Goma for days, ferrying more and more soldiers over to Katona to reinforce their positions. <laughs> this is this is great. This is like, this seems like it's so on brand for just the entire shit show. That is this, you know, this whole conflict, <laughs> you know. Uh. Now, once there, the Rwandans also bribed the, this local Congolese army garrison to rebel. And that happened as well. This happened to include dozens of tanks, um, mostly T-62s and T-55s. Uh There's also a hilarious side story here where, like, the story would come, because, like, you know, these... 
these pilots are going to land eventually and they're going to tell like, yo, we just got fucking hijacked by the Rwandan goddamn military. And that's exactly what happened. But the Rwandans refused to admit they had anything to do with this, instead blaming the hijackings on Congolese rebels and saying that they had nothing to do with it. This is all internal beef. This is immediately proven very obviously wrong when the hijacked pilots point out that one of the men on board were, uh, were, were sorry, all of the men on board were wearing Rwandan military uniforms. Uh, and when they had to, you know, like, you know, planes going back and forth are going to burn f- through a lot of fuel. Yeah. Uh, where do you think they landed to refuel? Rwanda. The capital of Rwanda. And ah. they were then refueled by the Congo or by the Rwandan military. <laughs> like, no, we had nothing to do with this. This wasn't us. Hey, hey listen, it's just like it was Antifa that stormed the capital. Okay, it was Antifa. <laughs> All right. It- they they were just yeah. they were just doing a, a they were deep state infiltrators Joe yeah <laughs> the the Schrodinger's Antifa yeah um, now confronted with this information Rwanda just kind of shrugged and said uh and then just went on with it <laughs> la 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 not listening to you <laughs> doesn't look like anything to me uh, now this might surprise you but Rwanda wasn't very slick about all of this and Congo had no since the beginning that they were involved in all of this unrest at the border and then now over in Katona uh, probably because they already did this a couple of times before um, now like we already pointed out that Congo really had no military cohesion um, and that's why Rwanda was able to install Kabila so easily. And Kabila never really had a chance to rebuild the weird collection of militias and personal uh, armies that made up Mobutu's army. I think probably part of that is because the guy that headed his army was Rwandan. Oh. Um, <laughs> but you know, he didn't have a chance in hell in stopping this invasion. So he reached out to who else? But Robert Mugabe, the dictator of Zimbabwe. Oh, man. Now, we talked a little bit about Mugabe uh, during our Rhodesia episode. Uh, And up until very recently, he was the only leader in independent Zimbabwe's history. After a collective force of black communists and nationalists owned the shit out of some racist shitheads and set them raging into our comment section decades later. <laughs> eat shit, Rhodesians. Yes, eat, absolutely eat shit, Rhodesians. And talk about a weird story arc. Mugabe went from a based commie, uh, somebody I could really just have a couple beers with, to a dude right. who just, oh, man. Well, he was never supposed to take charge. Um, Zimba- or, uh, he was, in the ZANU, he was more of a trigger puller that worked his way up the ranks. And then the Rhodesians actually assassinated um, that the leader of, of, of the ZANU PF so okay. leading to him kind of accidentally. Now there's like a lot of theories that it was an internal beef and then the, the ZANU and the Rhodesian government actually worked together to kill the leader and then uh, Robert Mugabe floated to the surface. Um, but yeah, uh, fuck him. Uh, Mugabe's bad. Yeah, it's like one of those situations that you live long enough, uh, you either die a hero, live long enough, yeah. so, see yourself become the villain. Yeah. yeah. I had a I had a soldier who was like a fucking like he was an economics dude before he joined the army. No idea what the hell he joined the infantry for, but I digress. Uh, but he yeah. and his dad both did business in Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, Ooh, that's that's sus. Yeah, <laughs> um, but they were they were there as like part of some like Western investment effort before he devalued the currency for like the third time in the two thousands. Right, right. Uh, so he actually brought me back like a two billion. Uh, like a two billion uh, Zimbabwean dollar note 
And oh, those things are so cool. Yeah, and dude, he's like, you know how much this is worth? And I said, no. He's like, not even worth the ink. It's like they printed the bill with. You know, <laughs> he's like, no. <laughs> One of my favorite stories, honestly, this this podcast has peaked. Um, and the reason why I've said that is we did our Rhodesia episode almost a year ago now, maybe a little, maybe a year ago, um, which led to it kind of getting popular in Zimbabwe. And uh, a Zimbabwean dude did not realize that there was like a, a literal American neo-Nazi buried very nearby his hometown. And he went and he pissed on the grave. Good for him. Fuck yeah, uh, and man. Sent, and sent me confirmation for it. I am <laughs> endlessly proud of that. Uh, and it's like, like one of the th- <laughs> one of the things that like Rhodesians and I don't and, and I say Rhodesians as in dudes who back Rhodesians or like the concept yeah. of Rhodesia because like Rhodesians don't exist anymore. The Zimbabweans made sure of that. Like we'll always post memes saying like Rhodesians never die, and I have this picture of a whole bunch of Zanu fighters holding up the head of a dead Rhodesian soldier. I'm like, I have photographic <laughs> evidence that says otherwise. Um. Now, <laughs> now, outside of South Africa at the time, Zimbabwe managed to retain one of the best and most competent militaries on the continent. Um, they, unlike most players in this clusterfuck, also had an air force and a pretty good one. Uh, and they actually, ironically enough, had been one of the main sources of Rwandan officer training. Oh. Uh, so Zimbabwe accidentally pulled an America here. Yeah, they did. They, tra- they trained the people they'd eventually fight. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah. You know what? Now, you, got, you got to have some consistency, right? There, there's always yeah. got to be that person. Ugh. But Mugabe... Uh, liberation hero that he is was not interested in deploying his forces out of the goodness of his heart. So, Kabila offered him unfettered access to several mines in Congo in exchange for military support. Turns out that is uh, all it took to uh, have Zimbabwean soldiers and equipment all streaming into the capital. And they managed to get there before the Rwandan airlift to Katona was complete. Uh, Because that is how a decent and well-organized military functions, Rwanda. Yeah, yeah. Is like <laughs> they, they have they have their own airlift capability without having to hijack civilian airliners. <laughs> and like Zim, like Robert Mugabe could be like deploy the military, and they'll be like okay, and then the military gets deployed. Yeah. <laughs> um, now none of this would have mattered though if Rwanda had cared enough about their invasion plan to maybe just possibly scout out the area they intended to use as a path towards the Congolese capital of Kinshasa. Uh, because when they landed in Katona, they discovered that despite it was only a few hundred miles away from the capital, not too bad of a, di- of a distance for like even the most moderately mechanized military with like cars or technicals or whatever, yeah. they'd actually kind of fucked themselves. There was only one road that led from the capital to Katona, and it was a single dirt track that would continuously become flooded every time it rained just a little bit. And do I have some news for you about the uh, the weather in Congo? It rains oh, a lot. Oh yeah, we're, we're, we're equator level uh, with with some dense, lush rainforests. <laughs> uh, it, get, uh, it gets buggy there, guys. It gets buggy. <laughs> Rwanda's like, if only we would have known from that last war that we fought here. <laughs> Yeah, so thankfully the U.S. didn't do that and say Iraq. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Despite all of this, they 
ran into virtually no resistance because they bought it all off and they marched towards the capital. I bet that march was constantly slowed down as their vehicles got stuck in the mud or the roads collapsed under them. Um, when that would occur, they would just leave behind whatever they got, whatever got stuck. Um, like, you know, tanks lose track in mud like crazy. Yeah. I could, I can attest to this. Um, and you know, you have to have some modicum of, of equipment and training to fix it. Which these guys did not have. So if they pop track or you know whatever happened, like oh, tank's dead, and they just leave it behind. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I mean, and th- this is the fucking killer here, man. It's like they're gonna need that to actually fight the good arm, you know, like you know the well trained army in this one. They attempted an invasion with no logistical capability, uh, which is something that like even Napoleon kind of had figured out. And he didn't have a phone yet. Yeah. Uh, now, I think a lot of this is because, again, bad reconnaissance. And they did not think that there was going to be any resistance to them whatsoever. So, like, who fucking cares? We're going to walk right into the cap. Uh, you know, yeah. it was Rwandan Blitzkrieg. Um, <laughs> Invasion through bribery. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, here comes another problem with um, logistics. Say you're running tanks and technicals and whatever else has an engine. You know what else you need? Gasoline. Oh, not to mention other uh, lubricants and oils and things like that. Yeah. You know what they didn't bring? Gasoline. Any of that. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and soon everything began running out of gas, which they also then ditched. <laughs> so essentially, this entire column heading towards the capital looks like a, a panoramic shot from the stand. You just have abandoned vehicles <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> like, you can just imagine being the guy who's, like, looking down at his fuel cage, like, come on, we're almost there. I want to <laughs> fucking walk out there. God damn it. Um, so eventually, though, they realize, like, we're going to need some of these tanks, right? Like, in case the... Because, like, the Congolese military isn't cohesive, but there is, like, there's some of them are going to stick around and fight for Kabila in the capital. So, like, they want some arbor support. So they had to stop, wait for someone to go all the way back to Katona to get gas, and then come all the way back. So they created a giant parking lot in the middle of the one road going to the capital. And that is when the Zimbabwean Air Force appeared. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> like, imagine you're, like, you're the... Because the, they're all fighter bombers. I think they're like Hunter Hawks or something like that. Uh, and they like look out the window. They're like, "You gotta be fucking kidding! Yeah. Like this is a trap, right?" <laughs> <laughs> so they, they begin bombing they... and strafing them oh. with impunity. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, can you imagine being those pilots though? Like, I, command's got to be fucking with us. Like they're just sitting there. <laughs> Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Nope! Nope! No! Oh, guys, this is gonna be so easy. This is this is ten, fifteen minutes of work tops. Then we go home. <laughs> Like even because um, like a lot of um, militia type movements when they get their hands on mechanized uh, equipment like they still will include like rudimentary anti air guns that they just use to fire at infantry yeah they did not even have those or they had broken down oh. um, so the bombers who were then bombing the shit out of the uh, the Rwandan collection there then radioed back to the Zimbabwean SAS. Uh, for people unaware, that is the Zimbabwean Special Air Services, their special forces, who then melted into the jungle and began setting a several-mile-long ambush for the Rwandans. So after they got oh. done getting bombed, they would just run through one continuous ambush. 
Oh my <laughs> Which god. Is chef's kiss beautiful. Yes. <laughs> Jesus, man. <laughs> Because remember, there's one road. There's nowhere else you could go. Yeah. Like, you can go back and get bombed or go forward and get ambushed by Zimbabwean special forces. You know, I'm just like, as an infantry dude who, like, went to RC East and RC South and Afghanistan, like, just getting into, like, a a four or five hour fire, you know, firefight was bad. But can you imagine, like, just the sheer amount of shit if you're going through a multiple mile ambush? (laughs) You're just... (laughs) <laughs> imagine a multiple mile ambush that the people ambushing you are some of the most highly trained soldiers on the continent and they can call in close air support yeah yeah you're fucked you're yeah. fucked <laughs> and that's exactly what the sas did uh the rwandans push forward and uh their congolese rebel allies st- stuck with them the ones that they bribed uh but for three days they push through a constant airstrike uh and ambush clusterfuck uh and by the time that their army made it to the outskirts of the congolese capital virtually all of their tanks had been knocked out which was bad because that was you know a very important part of their entire plan for taking the capital in the first place naturally yeah and then um, angola appeared uh, <laughs> now uh remember angola was previously the ally of rwanda but they invaded congo on the side of kabila's government <laughs> What the like, fuck? Surprise, motherfuckers! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And the thing is, you gotta think, it, these Angolan troops are gonna be uh, ready to fight because they just finished up the Bush Wars, you know, not too long, you know, prior to this with South Africa. And the Civil War. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jesus, um, man. It's it's something that absolutely nobody saw coming. Angola invaded Congo on the side of, of Kabila's government. And, like, this is also weird for other reasons, as Congo had sheltered an insurgent group known as UNITA, who was at war with the Angolan government ever since they'd won independence from Portugal. But the Portuguese, or, but the Angolan president, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, was a close personal friend with Kabila and was willing to overlook that whole thing. Uh, and in case you're not looking at a map, uh, you, I mean, this is one of those uh, episodes that, like, maybe it should just come with a map but uh (laughs) angola borders the region where rwanda and uganda had been landing their thousands of soldiers in katona which they had turned into their base of operations so rwanda's invasion of the congo accidentally turned into a two-front war against themselves Ooh, it's uh, DJ Khaled, man. Sorry, you played yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So with a force of just 2,500 Angolan soldiers supported by tanks, they steamrolled into Rwandan and Ugandan rearguard and marched through that one Congolese street towards the Congolese capital as well. Um, Now, I don't want to like gloss over a lot of the horrible details of this. Uh, because uh, Rwanda, they're like when the Rwandans came through with their Congolese allies that they had bought off, they are raping and murdering people, and so were the Angolans. So, like, it's it, I don't I don't want to dwell on that too much because that's not what this this episode's about. But like, there's everybody's committing war crimes while all this is happening as well. See, we, um, we circled back, everybody. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I felt like I have Michael McGinnis on. I got to bring up war crimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like I told uh, Shocks next time he is on. I, next time it probably won't have anything to do with war crimes, but also it probably will. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> that, that's the thing with these kind of conflicts, though. We we've seen that, like you know, these these groups use rape and and you know child murder and you yeah. know other atrocities like that. It's just things they can do during the course of military operations. 
you know? So it was yeah. like, Hey, you're, you're going to go, you know, I'm sh- I'm sure it was probably part of an op order, you know, like this is just what you're going to do with, this is what's expected. Um, you know, so it's, I mean, it's and there was also some uh, militia groups that use like AIDS for biological warfare. Yeah. Um, effectively, uh, it's disgusting. Uh, but now, this is where if you're uh Karabire or any of the Congolese mili- or any of the any of the Rwandan commanders or the Congolese militants who switch sides like I think it might be time to call off the attack. Like, you know, we're surrounded now. We have Angolans behind us. We have Zimbabweans in front of us. Like even if we took the capital, we're fucked. Yeah. Right? Uh but this is where numbers come into play. Remember the the Angolans only invaded with about 2500 guys. Which was admittedly enough. They weren't exactly fighting the cream of the crop. Yeah. The Zimbabweans didn't have that many people either. And Karabire was actually under the command of around 15,000 soldiers. Now, soldiers of varying quality, uh, but soldiers nonetheless. So he ordered the attack on the Congolese capital anyway. So as the Rwandans made it into the city, the Congolese defenders of the capital had all but abandoned the city of itself. There had been no real organization or leadership in place to keep them there, so they looted the hell out of their own capital and ran. This left the Zimbabweans only about few, uh, a couple hundred special forces, uh, and they had some like armored cars as well, uh, like nothing heavy outside of fighter bombers. Yeah. And some, I believe, some very small helicopters at this point. Um, maybe something akin to a little bird. Um, and the, the Zimbabweans took one look at this and realized, well, we can't defend the entire city, but we can defend the airport. It's our lifelink. You know, as long as the airport remains open, we can land and refuel our jets. We can get supplies. Um, and it's it's much smaller and easier to defend. Yeah, it's it's easier to defend micro terrain than it is you know macro terrain. Yeah. Um, now. The first attack against the airport was a surprise attack that showed that Karabure still had some tricks up his sleeve uh, after the old hijack shuffle. Uh, But he was also kind of an asshole. Now, he dressed up his lead units as retreating members of the Congolese military, something that would have been very easy since he had bribed so many of them to join him anyway. (laughs) Uh, As he got close to the airport, the Zimbabweans saw the Congolese military and did not shoot at them at first because they thought they were retreating allies. But then sev- several hundred of them uh, were in the open and only about a hundred or so yards away from the gate of the airport. Uh, the crew of those armored cars, they were kind of using the armored cars as like a gate. Okay. Um, uh, saw something they didn't like. Um, and they, nobody's really sure what it was. Um, but they saw something they, like, that rubbed them the wrong way and immediately opened fire into them. And I'm, at that point, I'm... I'm Assuming that Gunner really hoped he was right. Yeah. <laughs> he said they're talking to his TC like, uh, what do I do? <laughs> I'm just so, going to shoot. Beg for forgiveness later. <laughs> I'm going to use a gut feeling and machine gun several hundred people. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of contagious firing. Nobody's really sure what was going on. But uh, the other uh, armored car opened up as well as other SAS soldiers. Uh, and remember... Because the plan was to just kind of like, oh yeah, we're surrendering, and then walk into the air. There, there was no cover. They, the the Zimbabweans had done something very smart and created a kill zone in front of their gate. Yep. There was nowhere to go, uh, and they were right. Uh, there was a hundred percent Karabiri's plan, but also the, there was no backup plan. Like, well, you know, if they see through your ruse, you're just gonna get fucking shot. There's nowhere to run, uh, and they, they they just got gunned down in the open. Uh, but. 
Before they could high-five each other for not accidentally killing their friends on a hunch, the Rwandans launched a human wave attack by the thousands against the defenses again and again. Now, the SAS numbering only about 600 men, give or take. The Zimbabweans are very open with their numbers about this. Uh, began pumping murderous fire into the oncoming attackers. Because, remember, there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. But And no matter what they did, they still couldn't force back the tide of, of Congolese and Rwandan soldiers. So they fell back to the main terminal of the airport. Now, the Zimbabweans knew that at this rate, they're going to lose the runways and, lo- and not be able to um, continue putting out air, uh, planes and helicopters and stuff. So all helicopters and jets were scrambled to get off the ground as fast as they could. Well, control of the airport became split in half between the two sides. Uh, like there was two runways. The Zimb- Zimbabweans kept control of one for the most part. Uh, it occasionally went back and forth. Okay. The Rwandans and their allies took over the other part of the runway so rapidly that as fighter bombers took off, they were forced to circle back around and open fire on the same runway they had just launched from. <laughs> Holy shit. Just to clear another jet so it could take off. Damn. That, that's some like battlefield fucking battlefield three shit. Yeah. Like bombing your own airport. Uh, and uh, that, like jets crazy. were held back in reserve, another jet would take off, fucking flip a bitch in the air, bomb the runway or machine gun the runway so the other jet could then take off. <laughs> God damn! I mean, can you? That's just so hectic. You know, like any any, <laughs> any kind of battle can be hectic, but like when you've got you know a human wave attack, uh, you know that eventually overwhelms you. You fall back to the Alamo. You're trying to get all your air assets up. And God damn, man. Ugh. It's crazy. And this would happen constantly. Um, the SAS is held up on the northern side of the airport. Every once in a while, they would send out teams to clear the airport out themselves. Uh, they quickly learned that they could send out about a squad of SAS troopers and chase off about a company's worth of Congolese uh, rebels, which, sure. Yeah, tracks. tracks. Yep. Yeah. Um, they held up in a few buildings with uh, oncoming frontal assaults being blown to shit by close air support when they got too close. There is one account of SAS soldiers beating a Ugandan soldier to death with a brick when they managed to breach into the defense. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> like, wow, man. <laughs> what, what do I have? Rifle out of ammo. I can hit him with the rifle. Ah, I got this brick. I got this brick, <laughs> You know what? Motherfucker, you coming to this building, you're going to catch these hands. Yep. Oh, play stupid games, right? <laughs> the Zimbabwean brick of liberation. I'm surprised that brick hasn't been like, uh, you know, dipped in gold and like put on a fucking plaque, you know? Man, if it if that's not what hell of like an ETS or PCS award, it's just like the gilded brick that you brained a guy with. <laughs> Imagine you're on the other side and like... Yo, have you seen Jeff? Oh, he got brained with a brick when he went in there. I wouldn't go in there. Like, oh, fuck. There's some dickhead with no ammo that's just killing us with bricks, dude. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, the the ends of uh, a fury. He's like, bring me more pigs to kill. Yeah. <laughs> He's out of ammo. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. Yeah, I mean, hon- honestly, if I would have found out anybody, like if, if I would have found out Taliban was like murking us with an e-tool, 
at that point, <laughs> at that point, I'm like going back to the fob and I'm looking at my PL like, dude, fuck you. I'm not going out there again, man. I put one in my own foot yeah. at that point. <laughs> just like, no, dude, he's getting us with an E-tool, man. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> McGinnis, Kasabian, are you cowards? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> like, did you see what happened to that guy? A brick. Yeah. Are you catching this, sir? He got bricked. I'm staying my ass inside. <laughs> Uh, now, using this, uh, like, taking a hole, like, the, the SAS would go out, carve a little hole in, like, a building, and then hold it and slowly move forward piece at a time. And using that, they managed to carve out a big enough slice of the military runway, uh, and while under constant attack, that jets and helicopters could reland, refuel, and rearm so fast and so quickly, they could not or didn't turn off their engines and then take off again, circle back around and then blow up the other side of the airport again. Uh, and one case, a helicopter pilot while uh, getting, so he was getting like a ration from a cook who was also refueling the helicopter um, and like rearming the machine gun. Like he was eating and then saw a Congolese guy uh, run across the airport coming at them, pulled out his sidearm and shot him while eating. <laughs> 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 it's like motherfuckers coming for my beans and rice yeah. and just guns them down yo man I just got chili mac back the fuck off <laughs> <laughs> you're not coming for my pound cake motherfucker <laughs> now the average turnaround time I couldn't find how fast it was supposed to be so any ground crew for aircraft uh, slide in my DMs tell me how fast this is supposed to be uh, but through this, they managed an average turnaround of a combat jet while under fire in only five minutes. <laughs> so it could immediately take off and bomb them again. Yeah, and you got to think, I, I doubt they have actual like whole crews on the ground. This is probably just like slapdash. Like, hey, yeah. hey, you're not doing anything right now. Get your ass out on the flight line. You know, reload fucking machine gun rounds or whatever. You know, what, whatever the proper nomenclature is for you fucking air wing nerds. Okay, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, you know, uh, you're you're lucky. I remember the nomenclature for my fucking M4. Okay, like it's TBI is a hell of a thing. No, but like I mean, hey. yeah, but you know, I imagine that's what it was. So I mean, that's you can't fucking shake your dick at that, you know. And like a lot of the air crew that were there, like the sorry, the ground crew or whatever, were like wounded because you know they're trying to refuel and rearm jets in the middle of a several thousand man firefight, yeah. like. There's tens of thousands of people fighting and trying to kill them all around them. So like like I said that like there was cooks and uh like uh, a tailor. That was why the SAS brought a fucking tailor. I have no idea. Uh, that harkens back to some colonial yeah. era bullshit, I think. Well, dude, but like you, you got to have nice, you know, swag going when you're fucking murking a bunch of people that, you know, are trying to kill you. Like that's how yeah, I look like, at it. That pilot who was eating his pound cake and like uh, getting his helicopter refueled probably had some shiny ass buttons on his uniform oh, yeah. or whatever. Oh yeah, but you know they they were using cooks, they were using tailors, anybody like to include like infantry or you know SAS troopers. Like if they had uh, like a free hand, they were helping because the jets were keeping them alive. Yeah. They could shoot as many Rwandans or Congolese as they wanted. The jets were doing all the damage. They're their casualty producing weapon here, so they're like, well. I got five seconds of downtime, time to like go fuel up the helicopter or, or run ammo out to the air crew who's murking people from the window. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's and that's the I mean, I, I don't want to say that's good because like all wars fucking shit. Uh, but, 
you know, when you realize that it's going to take a collective effort to make sure everybody, you know, to keep as many people alive as you can. Yeah, you're going to do that. Um, yeah, exactly. Now, uh, by the end of um, this battle, pretty much anybody who wasn't wounded to the point that they couldn't move or, or work or fight was wheeling bombs and ammunition out to these airframes. Uh, and there's actually a couple times that uh, a pilot left his jet running and he jumped out and helped, <laughs> which I wasn't aware was something you could do. Uh, I don't know enough about jets, yeah. but they said they did it. Yeah. Um, now, the Air Force remained at this tempo for 20 hours with only three helicopters being taken out of service because they had been shot literally thousands of times, but nothing was completely lost and nothing was shot out of the air. Like, That's legit, This helicopter's man. more bullet holes than helicopter at this point. Yeah. I should probably bring her down. <laughs> and then when that happened, the helicopter pilots jumped out, grabbed a rifle, and then started shooting with the SAS. The next morning, the Zimbabweans decided to launch a counterattack, despite being outnumbered by thousands. But after being machine gunned and bombed for the entire last 20 hours, the Rwandans and their collective allies did not want any more of that smoke and quickly retreated back to the outskirts of the capital city. Now, the Rwandans were gambling. They assumed that the SAS couldn't possibly keep up an offensive being so badly outnumbered and keep up a counterattack. Uh, this is apparently uh, strange because they had just spent the last 20 hours fighting the Zimbabwe and SAS and should not have underestimated them anymore. Yeah. The retreating attackers dug trench lines and defenses to prepare themselves for it, but it didn't do any good because the SAS dove right into the trench line and kept on fucking killing them until they got the point. Hey, they just everybody's out of ammo, so they went in there with some bricks, dude. <laughs> Started right. Just affixing a, a, a brick to the end of your <laughs> rifle. <laughs> After being chased out of the trench system, Karabiri made no more attempts on the capital and retreated south into the jungle. This gave him one hell of a problem, though. There was no allied force for a thousand miles in any direction because the Angolans were quickly at their heels. They had become surrounded on three sides. So they did something that was as insane as their first plan. They invaded Angola. Oh, my God, dude. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> hey, Ang Angola, we see your surprise invasion and we raise you a surprise invasion. Oh, man. And you know, at this point, the Rwandan generals probably just got like this group of, uh, I mean, they're leftovers, you know? After, oh yeah. You know, like so many people have died. <laughs> you know, he's, he's sitting there like in the command tent, just like, you know what, you know, what'll catch these guys off guard. We're going to invade Angola. <laughs> and they're, and it's like staffs like, Oh no, sir, please. Let's not do this. This is a horrible Can we just idea. go home? <laughs> well, that was the, pl this is actually their plan. Uh, they like Karabiri realized he was straight up fucked but there was no good way to get home he could not pull back to katona it was controlled by angolans uh he couldn't like take over the capital he just got his shit kicked in by the zimbabweans he needed to find a way home so he invaded angola and this is where the ugandans and the rwandans completely abandoned their congolese army uh, al army allies in the jungle where they were almost immediately killed in chaotic fighting with the sas um now, the Rwandans and the Ugandans abandoned these guys to be something of like a forlorn hope rear guard so they can make a mad dash across the Angolan border. Uh, w once across the Angolan border, they assaulted a, a local airport with around 3,000 men, which was all they have left at this point. 
Uh, the Angolans, not expecting an invasion, only had about 400 dudes hanging out, most of them security guards and not soldiers. So they were quickly taken out. Now, this was the plan. They take over an airport, and they're, they're going to get some planes, right? They're going to hijack they're gonna, them again. They're going to go hijack some more planes. I get it. Okay. But, bad news. The Angolans had moved the planes to a different airport. So they had taken over an empty airport. So... They're like, okay, we'll call home. We can get Rwandan Airlines in here to pick us up. Problem. The airport wasn't big enough for commercial airliners. (laughs) (laughs) So they had to quickly start lengthening the airport with hand tools, something none of them knew how to do. So they did a really bad job, and it took them two months to dig out an extra 400 meters of airstrip. Uh, during which, because like now the Angolan military, not expecting this, had a hard time, you know, finding forces to counterattack this airport. Also because they just invaded another country. Yeah. Their logistics system is tied up. Uh, so they're like, oh, fuck, we need to whip up a you know, quick reaction force to retake this airport. And they tried, but they were able to be held off because there's thousands of soldiers in there. Okay. Now, before we go forward, I was told that I had to fill up like three sections of HESCO with a fucking E-tool. I can't imagine <laughs> leveling out 400 feet of airstrip, dude. Like, oh. I would do such a bad job. That pilot's fucked. Yeah. Dude, you know what I'm saying? You're done, man. Uh, no, no planes getting off the ground here. No planes, no planes landing here. This whole thing's just going to be a shit show. Oh. Now, there's a 0% chance that this, po- this plane might land. I'll give them that much. But it's probably not taking off. Yeah. It's it's going to be what you call an emergency landing. Okay, like it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> now, um this worked though. Oh. Um yeah, uh, which is wild. Rwandan planes eventually did touch down. I assume they were also hijacked. I don't know. At this um, at this rate it can't be confirmed or denied that any aircraft in Rwanda at this time wasn't taken from some other country of origin. <laughs> We didn't even need to do this. We have our own jets. It's the principle of the matter. <laughs> it's SOP. We we get near an aircraft, we hijack it. It's just <laughs> uh so planes started landing, but you know, there's three thousand people. So it took thirty overnight flights, and the Ugandans and the Rwandans finally escaped the Congo, leaving an entire country on fire behind them. This is the beginning of the second Congo War. And uh it would end in incredible failure um and the war wouldn't end uh the war had been started and it it wasn't like just because the rwandan military failed uh, it didn't mean that the war was going to be over it would continue for five more years and claim more lives than any other conflict since world war ii somehow james karabiri would become a national hero in rwanda despite being the commander of a hilarious fuck up you know it makes sense he's a general that failed up Right. Yeah, and this operation would become commonly studied in military academies around the world. For a, uh, for a example, at a total failure at every level. Also, Kabila would get killed eventually. Anyway, uh, three years after the failure of their operation to depose him, he was shot by his cousin, who was a colonel in the army. And then Joseph Kabila, Kabila's son, became president, a position he held until 2019. Oh, oh, yeah. Mm. Nepotism's great, folks. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Really the straw that stirs the drink in the world, you know? <laughs> God. I, I just... I mean, the Congo 
conflicts have always been horribly bloody. And I didn't realize that it, it was that bloody, uh, you know, that it had killed more people in any conflict, uh, you know, since World War II. Yeah, it's the, the level of destruction is kind of incredible. Um, and like, it's to the point that you almost kind of have to accept that. Like, I mean, we're still seeing the, the blowback from it. Yeah. Um, there's still militias that are fighting in corners of the Congo that could be loosely tied to one or two of these countries or their seeds in this war. I mean, there's still people suffering horribly from the after effects of it. And the international community does not seem to fucking care. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's par for the course though. We've seen that with this, you know, uh, you know, the post-colonial going into neo-colonialism is that unless there is a direct financial payoff, uh, the Western powers are just like, Hey, you know, we're going to stay out of it. Um, but you know, if, you know, there was a, a financial payoff, like say open access to mines or I don't know. In, in a current time, the Chinese are going in there. So now, obviously, we have to get involved. You know, that, yeah. of course, you know, we would have something to say then, but not when it actually counts. Now, Mike, thank you for joining me on the show. Um, we do a little thing to close out here called Questions from the Legion, where if you'd like to ask us a question from the Legion, you can donate a dollar to the Patreon, slide in my DMs, email, or Discord. Uh, and you can ask us some random question uh, that has nothing to do with anything we just talked about. And today's question from the Legion is, and this is actually pretty good because you're much more of a sports guy than I am. Yeah. Um, what historical figure would make a good Little League coach? Oh, oh, man. I got nothing. I never played Little League. I don't like baseball. I got nothing. Okay. Well, even if you don't like baseball, you know, essentially the, 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 the fundamentals you need to coach Little League is just being able to, to speak to the dumbest people uh, and teach them the fundamentals of something, right? And let's face it. I have two kids. I'm a father. Uh, they're both pretty smart, but they're both idiots, okay? Because that's what kids are. <laughs> they're, they're stupid, they're gross, and they smell bad. Uh, <laughs> but if we're talking a, historic, a historical figure that'd be a great uh, Little League coach, you know what? Dick Winters probably would have made a great one. Uh, Solid. Yeah, yeah. Because like he would just, he, like he knew how to get the best out of people. I mean, even if you didn't go by the, the, the miniseries kind of fluffed up version of Dick Winters, he wrote enough and enough was written about him to where you knew that this guy just knew what he's talking about. Now, if we're talking somebody fun that would like <laughs> verbally berate the children and make them feel awful about themselves. This, this would be my choice, yeah. obviously. Um, you know, I'm going to go with a guy like Andrew Jackson, who, oh, God. <laughs> who, would, who would tell them how stupid they were and then challenge a four-year-old to a duel. Okay, like... <laughs> <laughs> did he also beat people with a cane uh he, he or am i getting him and, and someone else mixed up he brandished his cane remember the caning uh on the senate floor was in 1859 and it was preston oh right right, right. Uh, beating charles sumner um, mm -hmm. on, on the senate floor uh to which if you'd like to hear more about that I have a history podcast as well, and we discussed I was it. about to say, plug your show. <laughs> this, is, this is how we close out, uh, if we remember, is plug our yes. guest show. Uh, yes, but I, I host uh, the You Don't Know History podcast, where we take a look at, you know, maybe parts of history that aren't talked about quite a bit. Uh, and I've lucked out, and I've had great guests, like Joe was uh, my first guest, and we talked about the uh, uh, Artsakh conflict that wrapped up in December 
well, I wouldn't say wrapped up. It just maybe cool. Hit the pause yeah. button. <laughs> 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 Called timeout to get a drink of water before they get back into it. Um, you know, I had Dr. Rob Thompson. He was on and talked about the Vietnam War. Um, you know, I had John Lake come on and talk about the U.S.-Dakota War. You know, and uh, you know, episode eight just hit today, everybody, where we talk about late Imperial Russia. Uh, so, oh, yeah. you know, get out there, uh, you know, subscribe and listen. Uh, you know, I really appreciate it. And I'm also a co-host of a sports ball podcast called uh, Hometown Crowd. Um, I also have a sub stack. So if you would like to read my words, uh, it's uh, you'll find it at underpaid freelancer because that's what I am. <laughs> <laughs> he has words. The best words. The best uh, words. Mike, thanks for coming on the show again. Uh, and everybody, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, don't hijack uh, a Congolese airliner. No, don't do that. Ha <laughs> ha.